You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the inaugural podcast for FDNY Pro's WNYF. I will be your host. I'm Lieutenant John Paul Orger, and we are going one-on-one today with Battalion Chief Joseph Downey. Chief Downey is a 31-year veteran of the FDNY. He is currently assigned to the Rescue Battalion of the Special Operations Command. He is also a task force leader for New York Task Force One and a frequent writer and contributor for WNYF. Greetings, Chief Downey. It's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you, John. We're going to talk today a little bit about the 38th Street collapse and about major technical rescues in general. It's October 2015. Manhattan dispatchers are turning out companies for a report of a ceiling collapse. Where are you uh, working this day, and uh, were you part of that initial assignment? The rescue battalion comes out of Roosevelt Island, and I don't believe we're on the initial assignment when they give a ceiling collapse. It's a new matrix that the dispatcher decides if they want to give a one engine, one truck, and a chief, or if they have more information and they want to add the technical response uh, assignment. So we weren't on the initial assignment. Uh, we got it as a ceiling fell down after that, and that's when they put us on the box to Manhattan. Okay, so maybe you could just uh, walk me through um, your thought process when you receive uh, an assignment to respond to a call type like this. It's kind of different because that ceiling collapse could entail many different things. It could entail the plaster coming off a ceiling, or it could come down to a major collapse. So we never know what that's going to be. We don't take anything too lightly. So for this particular one, it sounded like your normal ceiling collapse, maybe some plaster coming down. Without any additional information, we didn't know what we had. While responding and once on scene, tell us about the information you were receiving and what you were observing from an operational standpoint. We started responding to Manhattan, and as we responded, we heard additional information giving that they had one black tag and one person trapped. So that kind of had the, the wheel spinning, like what, what do they have now? Because they do have somebody trapped, but they're not requesting uh, anything more than the, the assignment they have at the scene. So we continued in. The rescue battalion got in there as the second chief on the scene. At what point did you realize you were dealing with a major technical rescue? Didn't realize the complexity of it until we got on the scene. We didn't know we had a technical rescue until we were actually in the building itself. Um, We responded in. We were monitoring the radio. There were reports of people trapped, of a collapse, uh, but it it didn't define how large the collapse was. Uh, The front of the building looked good as we approached the building, and not until we actually went into the hallway towards the rear of the building did we notice that they had uh, three floors of the rear of the building that collapsed on a worker. So we didn't realize it until we were at the scene Uh, looking at the worker trapped. They did a roll call of the workers that were on the site to make sure that everybody was accounted for. And our first due chief and units were pretty confident that they had the workers accounted for and we were only missing two at the time. What was it about this particular collapse operation that made it significantly dangerous? Uh, What makes one collapse type more dangerous than others? Uh, In this particular collapse, they had three floors that collapsed almost in a V pattern with the worker trapped at the point of the V. And all around that worker were the parts of the other three floors hanging over the rescuers, precariously hanging over the rescuers. The beams were snapped, uh, the joists were snapped, uh, the pile was unstable as we looked at it. Uh, It just fell to the first floor. So we were concerned with many different things with the pile itself. Each collapse is dangerous uh, for the guys working under it. This particular one, the worker was trapped under the debris pile 
and surrounding him was the rest of the collapse. They had floors two, three, and four with hanging over joists and parts of the floor still intact above us. So the workers were working in a dangerous scenario from get-go. Firefighters across the nation are familiar with the term size up and how it pertains to fire ground operations. In your article, you mentioned a technical rescue size up that's conducted by members of Special Operations Command. What are the steps performed in this size up? The technical rescue plan was developed in our rescue school for technical rescues. Step one would be preparation. Step two, response. Step three, assessment. Step four, hazard control. Step five, support operations. Step six, gaining access. Step seven, disentanglement. Step eight, packaging. Step nine, removal. And step 10 would be termination. So you mentioned in that first step, preparedness. How do members of Special Operations Command prepare for a major technical rescue? The members are given over 800 hours of technical rescue training uh, to become a member of rescues and squad companies. So they, they train out a division of training. We have multiple disciplines that they train on besides collapse, but collapse is one of those disciplines. They also do training in their firehouse. They've uh, converted their firehouses and training centers. So they're able to change the pole hole into a confined space or down in the basement. They create scenarios and mock-ups. So every day during their tour, they're training in the firehouse to keep their skills sharp. The second step you mentioned was response. Is it in this part of the size up that it was determined to transmit to 1060? And could you tell me a little bit about what a 1060 signal is in the city of New York? On the initial response, one engine, one truck, and the chief were assigned. Once they determined that they had a significant collapse, a rescue task force was assigned. That consists of a rescue company with its collapse rig, a squad company with its second piece, SOC support ladder company, the rescue battalion, and also a rescue paramedic and a hashtag officer. When the division got on the scene and conferred with the rescue battalion, it was determined that a 1060 signal should be given for a major collapse. For a collapsed major technical rescue, you would get these additional units to the scene. You get 3-2 and a chief. You get the rescue battalion. You get a tactical support unit. The safety battalion field comm would come. You get one additional rescue company, SOC compressor and SOC logistics from the Special Operations Command, Hazmat 1, Hazmat Battalion, and Hashtag Unit from the Hazmat Battalion. We had two task forces operating to remove the worker. Because of the dangerous conditions these rescuers were in, it was determined that we should have another task force respond to stand by as a fast task force in case there was a secondary collapse and we had rescuers trapped as well as the worker. That third rescue task force was used to remove the worker that was killed at the completion of removing the live worker. What were some of the hazards or concerns found during the assessment portion of the technical size up? I think the biggest hazard was a secondary collapse and seeing that the floors were still hanging above our rescuers and the worker pinned. We wanted to make sure there was no movement of the pile. So what we did is we set up safety firefighters to make sure that they kept their eyes on the, on the pile and if there was any movement, they would notify the members working underneath. It was determined through the deputy at the scene that nobody would move anything above the rescuers below because if any movement was done above, it may affect the collapse pile or it may drop things on the workers. And everybody communicated when any kind of movement was done within that collapse area. If they were going to try to cut, everybody was silent you know, below just to make sure once the cut was made, it didn't have an effect on the other side of the pile. 
the people up above, the rescuers up above, made sure that nobody was moving or tying back any of the overhanging collapse above the rescuers with the concern that something may drop on the guys below. The deputy chief put companies in the adjoining exposures, two, four, and three, that had eyes on the building, and if they saw any movement, they would notify the rescuers so we could move people out of that area. Utilities were shut down on arrival by the first two companies, but that was a concern, not knowing what utilities were still on, and because it was a building under demolition, we wanted to make sure that those hazards were taken care of. A critical component to many operations is hazard control, which is one of the steps in your size up. How did that apply to this collapse? The rescuers were working under the debris pile and the surrounding area that was still questionable. So what the uh, firefighters did was they took struts and they, in an unconventional way, they put the struts on the beams and joists to hold up the pile where they were working. We were hoping that the struts that were put into place above the rescuers would hold the secondary collapse if there was one. We put up about 12 to 15 different struts in the area of the worker and the rescuers, and that's where our members operated. What type of support was required at this operation? The support required was many different facets. We needed the technical rescue companies, which were our rescues and squads, to shore the area, to safe the area, to uh, eventually work on getting the worker out from underneath the collapse. We needed the engine companies to stretch lines as precautionary. We needed the sock support ladder companies to set up the cutting stations that supported the rescues and squads when they did their shoring operations. We had additional engines and trucks in the exposures, making sure that there were no movement. So we had exposure two, three, and four with companies in there watching for the guys working below them. We had, uh, I believe, three safety, three or four safety chiefs in each area to make sure that the members were operating safely and that they weren't in an unsafe position. Additionally, the Special Operations Command sent their logistics and compressor rigs, which they supply additional tools and equipment and air if we needed to operate air tools. You mentioned uh, in your article that gaining access was extremely difficult. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the work, unfortunately, was pinned at, as I said, in the V of the collapse. So he had a couple thousand pounds of debris from the collapsed floor sitting on his hip and his leg. To gain access, the members had to work in 12 to 15 inches of space on their stomachs to remove beams, joists that were holding the worker or pinning the worker to the first floor. They also had to shore up certain areas under the collapse so they were able to move particular beams and material off the worker. So it was very complicated, two-pronged approach. We had a rescue company, a squad company operating from the front of the building and a rescue and squad operating from the back of the building, both complementing each other, trying to lift the material and cut the material away from the pinned worker. Disentangling, packaging, and removal of the pinned worker was no easy task. Uh, Can you tell us about a few of the challenges met by your operators and the mitigating measures that they applied? It was extremely challenging and complicated because he was entrapped by three, four floors of material. So we had one rescue and squad operating in the front and one rescue and squad operating in the back. And like I said, they need to complement each other because you didn't want to lift the pile because every lift is associated with another movement on the other side of the lift. So they had to work together jointly to lift and cut to remove the worker. So it, it took a while because every time they cleared debris away from where the worker was when they first started, the bricks 
that I believe caused the collapse on the roof or the, the top floor that they were working on funneled down to the V of the collapse. So they would remove the bricks and more bricks would fall down. And they would remove that. It must have happened five to six times that that funnel filled up with bricks. So we had, to, we had to almost stop operations, clear the bricks out each time, and then eventually work together by lifting in like seven different spots with very specialized rescue tools, very low clearance jacks that they can get in underneath the pile and lift, not even an inch, just to lift a little bit to get a little room so that we can remove that worker. So like I said, there must have been seven or eight points that we lifted while cutting and working together. So about 45 minutes into the operation, we had a rescue paramedic crawl under the pile and evaluate our worker. He determined that an IV line needed to be established and he needed to start treating the worker for crush syndrome. He was in there about two or three minutes. He performed his operations and was removed and then the rescue operations continued for over three hours we operated. Again, just lifting in certain areas, cutting certain areas, shoring up the areas that wouldn't fall on our rescuers, uh, working together as a group, and it was, it was very challenging. Once we were able to clear the debris off our worker, we were going to remove him. We couldn't do your standard backboard packaging under the pile, so what we did is we tied some webbing on our worker, sliding him out carefully onto a board. We moved him to a safe area within the building, and we had a doctor on scene and the paramedic, which continued medical treatment that I believe saved his life at that point. They treated for crush syndrome again, they evaluated him before he got into the ambulance, and then they moved him into the ambulance. So Chief, there was a second victim that was fatally injured. Could you tell me a little bit about the removal of that victim? Once we removed the worker that was alive, we addressed the worker that was dead. And what happened to him was he was still in a standing position, a beam caught him on the side of the head, and pinned him against a container that he was filling up to clean up. So it was a basic, simple removal. We used our third rescue task force that was on scene, and basically they took a sawzall, made one cut of one beam, and he was removed. The final step in the technical rescue size-up is termination. This sounds to me like a culmination of breaking down equipment, gathering tools, and accounting for members, readying your units for the next operation. My question is, is a hot wash or an after-action review or discussion of operations part of this final step? Yes, it was. The termination of this job was very unique in a way because we had a tremendous amount of equipment used to support the collapse pile. So when we finished, we had one rescue collapse rig completely unloaded of equipment. So we had to regain all that equipment and get it back on the rig. We also had the discussion about what equipment needs to stay in place because we don't want to remove equipment or struts that were holding up the collapse and have the collapse fall even on our rescuers because they're taking out equipment. So we carefully removed the equipment that we thought didn't have effect on the pile. Some equipment was left in place because we didn't want to disrupt the pile. But we ought to realize the equipment is very expensive equipment that we use. Uh, it worked out that most of our equipment was returned eventually. Uh, it's not a priority. You know, obviously life is first. So we left stuff in place, not putting our guys in danger to get that equipment out. Terminating the incident itself wasn't like you just take the equipment, get on the rig, and leave. It was a great opportunity to go back in and take a look at what the scenario entailed that day and what we did and maybe how we can do things better 
or how we could correct some of our operations. Looking back at it, I think the guys did a tremendous job. You know, we talked about it that day. I think they followed it by the book. You know, our 10-step plan, as well as the equipment, the specialized equipment that was needed was brought in. And some of the equipment we haven't used for many years was taken off the rig. And that's why we have certain equipment on the rescue and squads is for that one time that you needed to rescue somebody, you want to make sure you're trained in it and you have it on the rig. So this particular termination took a while. We did have a hot wash. We brought others that didn't have an opportunity to take a look at where the rescuers were, removing them, and just discuss it for the next time around. Rarely do you have an operation that you operate for three hours and have somebody alive pinned for that period of time in a very, very dangerous position. So it was kudos to everybody that operated there. It was a full team involvement and a full team finalization of, of saving a life. Chief Downey, I thank you. It was a pleasure having you in the studio today. Stay safe, sir, and it was good seeing you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.